Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, we dig into Ottawa's plans to ban the use of some single-use plastics in this country, including plastic grocery bags, styrofoam containers for food, plastic straws, and more. And we find out if Canada's restaurants have enough time to make the transition. We talk to the head of the Canadian Medical Association about the crisis in our healthcare system, one they say only appears to be getting worse, and why they're asking the federal government to do more to try to confront some of the more pressing and universal problems we're facing. But first, we speak with the national president of the union representing customs and immigration agents in Canada about why the Arrive Can app, mandatory for all travelers entering this country since November of 2020, is directly impacting border agents' ability to do their jobs properly, and they say slowing things down at airports and land crossings unnecessarily. Well, first up, as of today, travelers will no longer have to be fully vaccinated against COVID-19 to board a plane or train in this country. You'll remember that announcement last week when the feds unveiled plans to suspend vaccine mandates for both domestic and international travelers, as well as crown-regulated transportation workers and federal government employees. Still, all travelers coming to this country, regardless of citizenship or vaccination status, have to use the Arrive Can app to submit their health information before arriving in the country. Now, ArriveCan was launched in April of 2020. It became mandatory for all travelers entering Canada uh, in last year, in about November. So the app collects vaccine status and personal information, such as home addresses and phone numbers, which can be used by health officials to monitor compliance with government orders. It's meant to slow the spread of COVID-19. Uh, but the app has also been called out by travelers and the airline industry as a source of frustration, confusion, delays at Canadian airports and at land border crossings. And of course, the union representing Canada's customs officers say that it is directly impacting their ability to do their job properly and slowing things down unnecessarily. They've essentially become, in the words of the union president, IT agents as well as border guards. Uh, they, of course, also dispute the numbers produced by Ottawa recently to show that ArriveCan is operating pretty smoothly. In fact, very smoothly. Joining me now with more is Mark Weber. He's the national president of the Customs and Immigration Union. Mark, thanks so much for your time tonight. No problem. Glad to be here. So, I mean, I imagine these are stressful times for your membership, no matter what, because they've been on the front lines of this crisis that we're seeing at airports all across the country. Yeah, I mean, they are. We've, we've been working the front line throughout the pandemic, and now as we're slowly coming out of it, we have this, uh, this rush in the summer, which we always are more busy in the summer. Uh, it's become a little bit more difficult this year, though, because we have that Arrive Can app to deal with. And again, our, our staffing numbers, front line anyway, are uh, significantly reduced. Will this uh, lifting of the mandates make any difference for, for you, for your, uh, for your membership? I mean, yes, it'll make a difference. Uh, we still have the challenge, though, of the ArriveCan app, and our staffing issues haven't gone away. Yeah, let's get to the ArriveCan app, because I know you were in front of the uh, House of Commons Standing Committee on International Trade last week, uh, really talking about the ArriveCan app. So, I mean, I've used it. Um, I know that I tried to fill it out before I landed, but I also remember being in that line coming through customs, and a lot of people looked pretty confused when, you know, pulling their phones out as they were arriving in front of your agents. So what's been the problem with it? I mean, people are confused. A lot of people don't understand the questions. Others 
simply don't know that they had to fill it out. We're finding um, it can be as low as about 60% that are have it completed once they arrive, up to about 75 depending on, you know, uh, who's coming through, time of day, that kind of thing. But uh, nowhere close to the numbers being given out by the CBSA, which I think they were saying 99% by air and 95% by land. Those numbers that they're providing are the numbers once we've helped the traveler and acquitted them in our system, not when the traveler I mean, arrives. Yeah, 99% sounds like a pretty pretty high number, uh, and much higher than what I witnessed. And you put it this way last week. You said your agents have essentially become IT consultants on the front lines. Well, that's it. You know, we're there. Um, we want to help people. We're, we're told to help people. We do. We're, we're doing the best we can. But when we see those kinds of lineups and we're already short-staffed, um, it, it is very difficult, especially for our officers on the front line. I mean, obviously, they hear about it from the travelers who are rightly upset sometimes at having to wait two, three, four hours to get through. We understand that. Uh, but it, the, the app is just making it so much worse than it needs to be. I gather you weren't consulted on the app. I don't know if you would be normally, but it seems like it would be, you know, those standing on the front lines who are inevitably going to have to help people with it uh, should probably be have cons- been consulted at some point to say, here it is and here's what it does and where do you see problems? Yeah, I mean, we weren't. It's not entirely uncommon. I mean, as an agency, I, I think for, for many things, uh, the people who actually do the job at the border are often not consulted on how best to do the job at the border. Those decisions are made at a higher level. Um, I agree with you. I think it would make sense to ask us how best to do it, but that just doesn't usually happen. So what's been the impact uh, when we see all these reports of people being backed up and so on? What's been the day-to-day impact on on the folks who are, I mean, honestly, you're the, you, you, know, you have a very important security job there. Uh, I mean, while you're spending time trying to help people figure out their phones. And that's the concern, right? We, it's, it's kind of a perfect storm. Our, our frontline staffing numbers have gone down gradually year after year after year, even before the pandemic. To give you an example, Vancouver Airport, we're looking numbers around 2009, 2010. We had about 180 frontline officers. We're down to about 80 now. Um, and that's been a, a kind of a gradual erosion of people at the front line. And then on top of that, now you have everyone coming out of the pandemic, wanting to travel and that app which, like I said, a lot of people are showing up without it being completed. So it's really a perfect storm of delay. And the problem is we are spending all our time helping people get through the app and get through with these lineups. Really, our job, which is really about, you know, keeping Canada safe and protecting our borders and such, that often kind of goes by the wayside because, again, all our resources are focused on helping people fill in the app. So you're down 180 to 80 in Vancouver alone. That's remarkable. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how you get the job done. Uh, the numbers are similar across the country. I mean, it, it's more obvious at large airports and larger land borders because there, there's that crush of people coming through, especially. But I mean, every mode, Marine, uh, all our different operations, our frontline numbers continue to go down and down and down. We think it's an over-reliance on technology. I think the thought from the agency was, we're going to put an automated kiosk in the airport, you'll need less people. Well, the automated kiosks take far longer to process someone, someone than a person does, and you actually need as many or more officers <laughs> to kind of do the work with the machines in place. Uh, and I think kind of the same thing with Arrive Can app. I think the thought was, you know, people will fill this out. Uh, it's user-friendly. They'll arrive. Everything will be completed for the officer, and it'll go smoothly. That, that's really not what's happening. 
IT should be there to help us do our jobs better. Really, the IT that's in place, the technology, uh, often it does the opposite. It makes it quite a bit harder. What's it been like at land borders? Because we've been talking so much about airports, but at land borders, it must be equally, equally um, confusing because you're not even dealing with people face to face, right? I mean, people are pulling up. Oh, at land borders, I would say, and going through the summer, I think will be as bad or worse than the airports. Yeah, and, and you're dealing with cars, so you could imagine the, the effect when you have borders with three or four lanes, and all three or four lanes have travelers arriving without the arrive can filled out, right? That traffic jam just keeps building and building and building and building and building. Um, you know, you're almost kind of creating a parking lot for us to be helping people complete arrive can. You, know, you mentioned, I think, at, uh, during your testimony, what the impact was already at car borders, at land crossings. Um, it, it's already relatively serious. It is. Uh, I don't really see it getting much better throughout the summer. It, it, it's very concerning. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming higher up people are looking about the, um, the viability, the, the necessity to keep the app going and, and to keep having to have people answer all these questions. I mean, it's not really our place as a union to to speak to public health measures. Um, But from a a simple practicality point of view, it's uh, it's been a nightmare. I think last week you mentioned at Port of Entries, you were processing 60 cars per hour previously, and now you're looking more at 30. Um, And then that also means sometimes directing travelers to other borders as well, which is confusion in of itself. And these, of course, as you mentioned uh, during your testimony, these are people arriving in the country, right? Oftentimes these are tourists coming here. Well, that's right, yeah. Yeah, I'm speaking with Mark Weber. He's the national president of the Customs and Immigration Union. We're talking about troubles with the Arrive Can app. Uh, the best laid plans, as always, it was meant really to facilitate people arriving, make sure that their health information was all contained in one spot, that it was easy to track, easy to monitor, easy to verify. But it has proven to be uh, difficult, especially for those using it for the first time, coming in through our airports and through our land borders and uh, customs agents left to try and do some IT troubleshooting on the spot, which is taking up time and slowing things down. When we come back, we'll talk a bit more just what need, about what needs to be done, what can be done now, uh, especially as we head into the summer crush. We'll be back with that. We're speaking with Mark Weber, the National President of the Customs and Immigration Union, this half hour. Of course, today was the day that uh, mandates were lifted. Unvaccinated Canadians can now travel again um, on plane or train in this country. But the Arrive Can app, if you haven't used it, uh, it is an app that uh, you're supposed to enter health information on your way through to make sure that you... Uh, fit the bill to come into the country. And uh, oftentimes it can be a little confusing. It's not exactly easy to use. And oftentimes uh, our customs agents or custom, our border guards are left trying to uh, help passengers or help people driving up to borders with their uh, with their troubles with it. Um, Mark, what is the solution then other than simply either lifting it or getting rid of it or trying to, to streamline it somehow, make it simpler? I mean, I think they need to narrow down the, the questions. I'm not sure that everything that's in there is, necess- is necessary now. Again, I mean, public health measures are that's up to Health Canada to kind of decide what's necessary. But um, I mean, really, if it's just checking whether or not someone is vaccinated, I think for the most part, people can show you that on their phone. Yeah, I mean, and and... and- because we're about to head into an even busier time of year. And from what you've been saying, it's not like the staffing issues are going to solve themselves over the course of this summer, at least. I mean, our, our training is 18 weeks. Um, you do kind of an apprenticeship for a year before you're a full BSO. That There's no way that there are staffing shortages get fixed for this summer, no. 
What was the response like when you appeared in front of committee? Did you get the sense that people are are desperately trying to figure out what a good solution to some of this would be and that perhaps Arrive Can is one of those? I mean, yeah, I understand the uh, the concerns that were brought forward by businesses, by by governments, by everyone. It, it's concerning. And, you know, we're, we're really early in the summer. It's going to be quite something if this goes on day after day after day after day through July, through August. Um, it's a lot to ask. Travelers are frustrated. Businesses are frustrated. Um, something's got to change. What's it been like just, I mean, I'm picturing sort of, you know, a July day, 32 degrees, parked in your car, waiting in a long line to cross into Quebec, for instance, from from uh, from New York State, uh, and sitting there for three, four hours, and then arriving to sort of show your show your app. I mean, it, your frontline staff must be suffering some, some unhappiness here, too, just from, you know, just the kind of uh, displeasure we see from the traveling public at the best of times. Absolutely. I mean, and again, there's a lot of that. We understand it. We, we see how long people are waiting. We see what they have to go through. We get it. We're doing the best we can with the people that we have. We need a lot more people working on the front line. I think that would help greatly. But like you said, there's no way really to fix that for the summer. You mentioned this in the first half, just about technology supporting uh, instead of hindering. I mean, some of this technology seems to work well if you're used to it. The problem seems to be often with the, with the people coming in who never used it before, that it's, it's tough to use the kiosks if you've never seen one before. They're slow. Uh, do you think there's a way of improving some of this stuff in the near future? I think there are. I think the whole system that's designed at least, to, I mean, you're talking about the automated kiosk that they have at airports. The system right. itself, how it, how it works, is kind of redundant. Previously, you'd fill in your declaration on the plane. You'd land. You'd give your declaration to an officer who'd scan your passport. Sometimes you get asked a few questions, and that was it. Now you fill in nothing on the plane. You go to an automatic kiosk where you've got to figure out how to use it for it to print out a declaration that you then bring to an officer anyway to look it over. So I, I don't really know what that is accomplishing in terms of efficiency, in terms of security. We're only speaking to a fraction of travelers, whereas before we would speak to every traveler. Um, I, I think there's there's needless redundancy built into that. Mark Weber, well, I wish uh, you and your membership good luck for the summer. It sounds like it might be a tough one, but uh, as always, we tell people, just be patient. We do our best. Thank you very much. <laughs> Well, you probably heard this on the news today. Ottawa is banning companies from importing or making plastic bags and takeout containers, styrofoam ones, by the end of this year, from selling them by the end of next year and from exporting them by the end of 2025. Stephen Gilbo, who's the Environment Minister, made the announcement in Quebec City today. He published the final regulations enacting the ban today, all part of the government's plan to eliminate plastic waste entirely. By the end of the decade, the final wording also includes a ban on plastic straws, plastic cutlery, plastic stir sticks, and those carrier rings that you carry cans in. He says the government is open to adding more items to that list one day, but it's targeting the ones that were the most common and easiest to replace first. The government also intends to impose standards requiring a minimum amount of recycled content and single-use items in a bid to create a bigger market for plastic material from recycling plants. Here is the Environment Minister in Quebec City today. And all these products have available alternatives. This comes after extensive consultations that the government, the government conducted over the past several years. Our ultimate goal is zero plastic waste. And thanks to these prohibitions, Canada is one important step closer. 
our zero plastic waste objective is for 2030, but obviously that doesn't mean that we, we can wait until 2029 to deploy all, all of the elements. So these elements will be coming up, some of them in, in the coming months, other elements, and some might take up to a few years to develop. Well, joining me now is Calvin Sanborn. He's the legal director at the Environmental Law Center at the University of Victoria. Welcome to the show. Thanks for your time tonight. Hi, Ben. So uh, take a non-plastic knife and help me cut through this. What was, uh, what was your reaction to what you heard today? Uh, does it go far enough? And, and what would the impact be? Well, I've got a positive reaction. This is a first step. And Canada is taking an important international lead here. Like France is ahead of Canada on this. But, uh, and there are hundreds of jurisdictions that have done parts of this kind of ban. Like there's hundreds of jurisdictions that have banned checkout plastic bags and hundreds that have banned straws. But this, this suite of measures that was taken is uh, progressive and an international uh, scale, but there's a lot more to do because we've, we've got this problem with plastics that a lot of people don't realize that the Strait of Georgia between the mainland and Vancouver Island has, uh, in, a, in a cubic meter of the water there tested, uh, 3,000 particles of plastic are found in every cubic meter of water tested. And we, we know that uh, every uh, shellfish sample uh, sampled on Vancouver Island has plastic in it, and that the salmon coming back to, to spawn are ingesting 90 particles of plastic a day. So we've got a, a problem here that we need to deal with, and this is a small step towards a solution. I've heard this referred to, our, our age referred to as the plasticine by, by, by people in your shoes. <laughs> yes, that's right. In your, in your shoes. Um, so just the impact of banning these specific items, because I think the environment minister mentioned it, that these were ones that were common and easy to replace. So cutlery, straws, uh, styrofoam containers, plastic bags. Are those things that, will this make a difference? It will make a difference. It's, it's not the majority of plastic in the ocean. We have to uh, go after other plastic. Like one of the biggest sources of plastic is, uh, is fishing nets and crab traps and plastic from uh, fish farms. And so we have to go after that kind of plastic and actually retrieve that plastic out of the ocean. Uh, we, we have to go after other products like water bottles. Uh, we were disappointed that they didn't uh, put a ban on water bottles which were, are almost totally <laughs> uh, useless. Like, there's easy replacements for water bottles, which is tap water, which, which is safe across Canada, um, and, and creates enormous amounts of waste. Um, and we need to uh, get to uh, uh, extended producer responsibility, where the producers of plastic actually pay for the the disposal of all this waste, because right now taxpayers are subsidizing this wasteful society that we've got. Like, it's taxpayers paying for much of the uh, the landfilling and recycling of plastics across the country. Um, so more needs to be done, but uh, this is definitely a, a good step. You know, part of the issue always, of course, is that we know that plastic production around the world is going to grow, continues to grow, has grown at a, at a fantastic rate over the past little bit. And sometimes it may, must feel a bit, um, you know, that when a country like Canada moves ahead with this, that the overall impact might be relatively light. But I guess we are amongst the first to take this step as a nation. I know it's been done locally, but, uh, but as a nation, one of the first uh, to take the, make these moves. Well, that's right. And other nations are looking to us. I had messages from, uh, from India today and from South America today 
about uh, about a positive reaction to Canada taking this leadership. And Canada put forward a, a charter t- uh, a few years ago to uh, move to a plastic-free ocean. And, and that's an important thing because so much of the plastic that's a problem in the world today uh, is, is coming out of the developing world. And those, those countries are moving to, to restrict plastic, but the Canadian initiative here will become a, a model for, for those countries to start to get a handle on their problem. Where do you see the benefit? I mean, if you, for, for those who are, you know, will miss plastic straws or those who will miss the convenience. I mean, I'm in Victoria, as you are, so we, we remember when plastic bags were taken away. Uh, it all happened quite fast and quite easily, actually, for those out there who may be worried about it. Uh, but there are always those, there are people out there who resist this. You know, rest, small restaurants have to put up with the cost. Or um, Is enough being done to help the transition, I guess, is what I was getting at. Yeah, I well, I hope so. Like on straws, the big issue was uh, uh, disabled people that, that need straws. And so there were accommodations made in this law to, to allow for straws for people that, uh, that need them uh, for, for a medical reason. And, uh, and those kind of accommodations can happen. Uh, but to a large extent, these these changes can be done. You know, the, a generation ago, <laughs> we, we didn't have this kind of plastic waste. So I always say, let's go back to, to what our grandmothers told us, which was uh, to not waste things and to, um, to move away from this throwaway society. Like we've, at, outside of every coffee shop in North America, you've got these huge garbage bins that get filled with, uh, with paper cups and, and plastic, uh, plasticized cups. We don't need to do that. We can uh, move to, uh, gee, using a reusable mug. It's, it's not that tough. Like uh, over the pandemic, I've been taking my thermos to, to work, and I'm saving a lot of money and, and also having less environmental impact. And, and this is happening in many places. There are many universities and, and, other, and local jurisdictions that are moving to uh, deposit refund systems for for not only coffee cups, but also for food containers. And, and we can do this sort of thing. It's just kind of a changing of a paradigm here and recognizing that that, that wastefulness can't go on forever, that there's actually an environmental cost. And, and when we look at heat domes, like the heat dome that we had in British Columbia last year, is partially driven by this wasteful society, that the fact that we use too many uh, cups, coffee cups, and and throw them away is actually directly linked to things like the heat dome. And the heat domes are going to get worse as we we realize that 15% of our carbon footprint is going to be coming from plastic production very shortly. And so we, you know, these are things that don't have to have a big impact on our lives. We can actually have a better quality of life if we don't have heat domes and we use a reusable mug. Yeah, the ones that always get me are sort of the individually wrapped apple, <laughs> apple slices, mm-hmm. and things like that. Yeah, those ones. Um, well, and the plastic so, industry yeah. is always looking for new new products to sell. So uh, you know, there's a very concentrated effort by the plastics industry to convince us that we need that extra plastic around an apple, or we need this this extra plastic product. And I would advise people to look at that NPR special on how the plastic industry totally deceived the public in the 1970s 
about recycling and convince people that um, that they could recycle their way uh, out of the plastic waste kind of thing. And uh, and now there are fraud charges being investigated in California and other jurisdictions related to the plastic industry advertising in the 70s. So uh, don't believe everything you hear. <laughs> yeah, well, we always we always tell our listeners to, to trust but verify, as always. Yeah, um, that's right. Well, thanks so much for, for weighing into this. I guess we'll see where this goes. We're expecting uh, more detail as well. Uh, but Calvin Sanborn, thank you so much for your time tonight. It's a pleasure, Ben. Talk to you later. Well, that was our question for you tonight about this ban on the use of some single-use plastics, such as plastic grocery bags, styrofoam containers for food, plastic straws, stir sticks, those plastic rings on around cans. Uh, let me know what you think. Uh, is it a good idea? Are we doing it too fast? Is it going to make a difference? Um, as my previous guest was talking about, um, it may not make a big difference worldwide where the uh, fabrication use of plastics continues to rise. You can go to any parts, many parts of the world, and they're literally plastic bags and water bottles all over the place. Uh, but certainly in this case, he felt that Canada leading by example was a good thing. Well, one of the industries that will be on the front lines of this change is our restaurants. We know that they've had a tough time over the past few years with closures and seating restrictions and so on. And a lot of times they've turned to takeout and delivery. And what do they use for takeout and delivery? Well, a lot of the times it's single-use plastics. So already relatively tight times to eliminate those. Is the industry ready? Can it be done on time? And what impact might it have on us, the customer? With more on that, I'm joined by Olivier Bourbeau. He's the Vice President of Restaurants Canada. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. So just first reaction, uh, I gather the Restaurants Association has been generally quite supportive of some of these measures, but but just what kind of impact might it have? Uh, the impacts will will be uh, really serious, uh, meaning that uh, first thing first, we need safety. Um, uh, safety is number one in terms of food for our customers. Uh, that being said, uh, with takeout and delivery that have increased by far during COVID, obviously, um, we are already um, in short supply in terms of containers, uh, utensils, all these products. Therefore, when a government is looking to, well, will actually ban them in a short term, um, it's important to have access to the alternative products. But currently, the alternative products are not available in a number, in the amount that we need, plus at an affordable cost, affordable price. So where are you seeing that gap? Is it in, in terms of just like replacing the styrofoam packaging? Is it replacing straws? Is it replacing where, where is the, or just the bags themselves? Where are you seeing a, a potential gap in this timeline? Uh, what we what we've been asking is for an extended transition, and uh, we think that uh, the government should work closely with the suppliers to make sure that they provide them enough time to 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 um, to make make sure that the supply will be in place, and again at an affordable price. Just a reminder that an average restaurant's pre-tax margin profit is between 2 and 3%. So every dollar counts, especially at the time that uh, currently there are still half of the restaurants in Canada that are still at risk of closing. 13,000 of them have closed permanently in Canada. So yes, we want to be part of that transition. Uh, these six items, uh, we, we would be pleased to, to, to change, to, to, to follow that, that, that wave sustainable way. That being said, we need to make sure that the, 
the, the, the alternative products are, are available. So right now, I mean, just in terms of the impact, I mean, I know that here where I am in Victoria, they banned plastic bags a while back. Uh, restaurants adapted, but clearly if all restaurants across the country are now looking for the same uh, sources mm-hmm. of, of, of uh, packaging and so on. Uh, so, so where do you see the potential shortfall and, and what kind of impact could it have uh, both on restaurants and on their customers? Well, the shortfall will be and is already everywhere. I'm going to provide you an example. Uh, there's a chain that I will not name, but they own, uh, they have 70, 70 plus restaurants in Ontario and Quebec province. And um, the procurement VP tells me that, you know what, I, I when I need to order 10,000 carton boxes, uh, <laughs> it's not even a question of putting my logo on, it's a question of getting them and he gets half of them, so he buys everything. So imagine the, the small independent restaurant. He will not be able to, to, to find any replacement product. Um, so, 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 so in this case, again, I, I, what, what we are asking is, is to make sure that the transition time will be long enough and, and, and that the government should, they, they, they should accompany the suppliers. They, they, will, they should support them. Just make sure that they will be able to deliver do you get the impression the government has a good concept of just what the sort of supply chain uh, impact would be of passing these sorts of rules, especially with one coming into force in a year, right? One is one is about 11 months away now. Yes, yes and no, actually, because no one could, could have predicted uh, the, all the cons- consequences of COVID, obviously. Uh, so the government uh, tried to adapt. Um, of course, they want also to push policies forward, environmental policies, sustainability policies, which makes sense, of course. But um, they, I think that they are between a rock and a hard place, just like we are. And uh, they, they definitely need to uh, to support us, to support uh, the retail industry, the food industry, but uh, moreover, the suppliers. Uh, again, um, at an affordable price as well, Um we uh, we uh, sometimes hear that uh, just to change um, to make the transition for the for, for, for the containers themselves and the utensils and everything just the containers it could uh, it could increase our our uh, charges by one hundred and twenty five percent so it's 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 huge for us especially since uh, takeout and delivery uh, have increased and they they are here to stay at that level for minimum six months or a year. Uh, we are pleased that, that, that the citizens, that, that our customers continue to do that uh, because obviously our dining rooms, um, well, they are full of people, but we are not open every day, labor shortage, uh, several uh, problematics. So every, again, every dollar that we can have, just make sure to pay the rent and to pay our employees. Well, it's really important for us. So what kind of timeline would then make sense to uh, to the restaurant business? Or are there any particular items such as plastic bags that you might find it easier to phase out in that timeline and, and you just need some room on some of the other ones? It, it, it's an excellent question. It, it's really difficult to say. Um, I would have to ask, I, I, I want to uh, send them a question, but I would have to ask a supplier just a minute to, to, to ask them, uh, to ask him, uh, when when are you planning to be able to provide Retail in us uh, all these products. Um, so I, I, we are not in a position right now to provide the answer. But uh, and, and I apologize for that. But uh, we we don't want to ask for five, ten years, something like that, because we want to be part of the transition. But 
uh, we, uh, it's, it's going to be important that all stakeholders will work together and will make sure that the transition um, is being done, done perfectly. So last question, uh, the timeline you've heard today, is that realistic? As we speak, I doubt it would be realistic um, because it's already difficult to get the plastic ones right now. Um, and, I think, and, and, and an important uh, number of, of these products were um, already recyclables, by the way. Um, but, uh, but yes, it's, it's in, in our opinion, it's too short. Uh, so, which is why uh, we recommend the government to make sure to work closely with suppliers, make sure that uh, it's going to be uh, possible for them. Olivier Bobo, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you very much. Well, it may come as no surprise that the healthcare system in this country, as we know it, is in crisis. That may sound dramatic, but the head of the Canadian Medical Association warns the strain put on the system throughout the pandemic, as we've been documenting and talking about now for ages, shows no signs of lessening. If anything, it's getting worse. And our politicians, she says, don't seem to be showing the kind of will needed to turn it around. Joining me now is Dr. Catherine Smart, president of the Canadian Medical Association. Dr. Smart, thanks so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. It was interesting because you're right, we've been talking a lot about weights at airports, but uh, you mentioned in an interview last week that if anything, if you've been waiting for a hip replacement, then it's nothing. Um, we're, we're in real trouble here, it seems, and, and you're speaking out about it, and that's not what you always do. No, we are in real trouble, and, and I think, you know, it's not to say that people waiting in airports should have to do that either, and I certainly never want to minimize people's experiences, but, but I think what really struck me about that was just the attention that got, you know, um, tons of media coverage, lots of Canadians speaking up, you know, several ministers declaring an emergency, and, and I kept, couldn't help but think to myself, well, what about all these Canadians who are waiting for really serious things and suffering, not for days, not for hours, but sometimes for years? And right now, that's the situation we're in. I'm, I'm really concerned about the quality of care that people are receiving, the wait times, um, how care is being delivered, and, and really importantly, just the degree of burnout and, and moral distress this is causing in my colleagues and other healthcare professionals who are really deeply worried about their ability to continue to do their jobs to a standard uh, that they think is what Canadians deserve. Yeah, I was reading an op-ed, I think, at the Toronto Star recently, where one former medical professional uh, now asks her physicians how they are doing. Uh, That's right. Which, which just says it all, doesn't it? No, it really does. And that was Dr. Jillian Horton who published that today and was just reflecting on on how that's changed and, and just how low the morale is and how burnout is really a result of working in a broken system. And, and I think that's important. And, you know, we know that burnout matters because it's also really important in safety and quality of care. And when the people in the workforce aren't doing well, uh, the care that people receive from them suffers. So that's why it should really be top of mind for people. Uh, we need a healthy workforce to deliver excellent care to our patients. So, Dr. Smart, if you were to explain to listeners just what happened, because I think we were all paying rapt attention to the healthcare system right through those early days, uh, even the first you know, 18 months of COVID, and then it just seemed to, to wane a little bit. Um, what's happened? Because it's certainly the pressure on our healthcare professionals has not changed. If anything, as you said, uh, it's gotten worse because I gather the backup is coming in now. That's right. I think, you know, I think a few things have happened. 
I think anytime there's a crisis like COVID, I mean, it's been going on for a long time and, and healthcare has been very prominent in the media. People have been talking about it a lot. I think naturally people start fatigue when they're hearing the same thing over and over again. And, and I worry that we get kind of complacent and just sort of accept it. I think because we've been talking about, you know, issues in healthcare even before the pandemic for a long time, it can have that same impact where it almost just becomes a oh yeah, we know there's problems there, but unless you're kind of the person sitting in the chair with your broken leg for three days waiting for your surgery, it's maybe not top of mind day to day. And then I think other things are, are happening in the world as well that have you know very appropriately taken our attention. And there's other things then that have been dominating in the media space, and there's just been less attention on the, the issues in healthcare. And I think, you know, when the pandemic was really at its peak, we were seeing more dramatic healthcare stories, you know, intensive care units overwhelmed questions of whether care would have to be triaged to people, life and death type things. Now what we're seeing is more of that slow burn that, and it, it's impacting across the system, you know, lack of access to family medicine, growing surgical backlogs, emergency departments that are overcrowded. And people have heard about these things before, but I think what's different right now is really the scope and the depth of it. So this is a problem that's happening across the country. It's not just, you know, one town or one province. Um, We're really seeing that impact dramatically. And we're starting to see things we haven't seen before in the system. You know, emergency departments actually closing in some smaller centers some of our larger centers even being on diversion because certain staff aren't available. Like, for example, recently in Calgary, the Rocky View Hospital was diverting surgical patients because they didn't have a surgeon. I mean, this is a major hospital in a major city. This is not a small town. So th- this t- type of thing is, is really very different. And I'm seeing daily from colleagues just stories that are unbelievable. You know, someone with a broken femur sitting in a chair for three days waiting for surgery. I mean, I really worry about how we're preserving the dignity of our patients and our, our ability to really provide people with care that's reasonable. And I don't think anyone would think those types of things are reasonable. No, no. I mean, we take such pride in our public health care system, but clearly not if it's in, in collapsing like this. I mean, just how much has it changed and what's happening since you know, the strain of the early days of the pandemic has started to lessen a little bit. And where are we seeing it? Uh, I think you mentioned at one point that kids are are amongst those waiting the longest for treatment these days. Yeah, that's right. In Ontario, children actually have the longest wait times of anyone across the board. So that's for diagnostic imaging, surgery, to see a mental health professional. All those wait times are actually have grown longer than adults, which I, I, I think is quite probably surprising for people. And lately in children's hospitals, the wait times in emergency departments have also been longer than in adult hospitals. And that's for a multitude of reasons, primarily that right now as you know, the pandemic restrictions are lifting, we're also seeing a lot more viruses circulating. So we have an an unusual number of children having viral illness for the time of year. Usually once we head into these warmer months, those things are less common. But right now it's more like winter months and we're seeing sort of surge levels of visits to emergency departments and then of course those backlogs and I think that's what we're starting to see in terms of the pressure across the system is is people that didn't receive care during the pandemic uh, are presenting where so people are coming in with sicker more serious illness sometimes things that haven't been picked up or diagnosed that would have been sooner and people that have been waiting for surgery of course many of those people their conditions declining while they're waiting so they may be coming in with pain that's unmanageable or complications 
from their medical problem that led to them needing surgery. So I think we're seeing a lot of those things kind of coming into our emergency departments and that's creating more people in the hospital and that's putting pressures on the inpatient beds, which then, of course, also cause that emergency department overwhelm. And then on either side of that, we are really struggling in the community as well. So, you know, in terms of where patients move to once they're done their time in the hospital, that's an ongoing issue. We have many people in our hospitals that are what we call alternative level of care patients, usually elderly patients who could be cared for in the community, but there's no spot for them either in long-term care or there's not adequate home care resources to allow them to move out of the hospital so they're occupying a bed. And that's a huge uh, issue that we have across the country, but it's been particularly in terms of blocking those beds and not having space then for new people coming in with acute problems. And side of it, sort of in the community, we have this real issue with access to primary care and family medicine, which means some people are not having their chronic illnesses managed optimally, and that, again, can lead to people to deteriorate and need acute care. So, you know, it's a system. It's like an organism, and all these pieces impact each other. So what's kind of happening right now is there's really no aspect of our system that's doing well, and all those cumulative pressures are, are really showing up with a huge system under strain. And then, of course, on top of that, we have really dramatic burnout in our staff. So, you know, for physicians, the level of burnout has essentially doubled during the pandemic. It's very similar for nurses. We're starting to see people walking away from healthcare. There's been a lot of loss of nursing staff over the course of the pandemic, and now as well. Um, And that means people that are showing up at work are showing up to environments that are short-staffed. And that, again, just leads to the pressure and and the burnout making it even worse. So it's sort of this cyclical problem um, that we really need to be thinking about because it is impacting access and quality of care that people are receiving. It feels like the whole system needs about a month just to stop and reset, but you'll never get that chance to catch up. Uh, I know that, Dr. Smart, you have been speaking with uh, federal politicians of late, uh, with the minister trying to find or at least suggesting that the federal government needs to get more involved in this. uh, And we'll talk about that after. Dr. Catherine Smart is with us this half hour. She is the president of the Canadian Medical Association. We've been talking about just how much strain the entire medical system is, the healthcare system in this country is this day, these days from come by chance to Kamloops, I understand. Um, and just what can be done about it? Because uh, clearly uh, something needs to be done um, with the situation as it is now. Uh, I understand, Dr. Smart, that you spoke with uh, with the health minister this week and you're really looking, I mean, I know this is provincial jurisdiction, but you are looking for the feds to do a little bit more, what would that look like? We are asking the federal government to do more. And, and I think, you know, we've, we've sort of been all been told it's, it's a provincial jurisdiction, but there is actually grounds for it to be a shared responsibility and a shared jurisdiction. And that's really what we're trying to advance with the federal government. I think it, it's quite clear that the, the degree of, of challenge within our healthcare system is, is going to be challenging to solve uh, in 13 separate silos with everyone sort of doing their own thing. And, and I think, you know, that's best evidenced by the fact that it hasn't been solved yet. So we probably need to start thinking a little bit differently about how we're going to do things if we want to get a different outcome. Um, so we did have the opportunity to meet with Minister Duclos. You know, we've all uh, recently heard about some of the priorities the federal government's advancing around health, and we had a chance to have more of a conversation about that. I think uh, he and his team recognize that there's a need to, to build a collaborative relationship with the provinces around health and the territories. 
and and I think that they're getting some some receptiveness uh, to that as well. I think everyone's realizing that just this has really ballooned into something that's quite both scary and overwhelming. And there's an opportunity for us to share solutions and ideas and, and start moving in the same direction because a lot of the big challenges are similar around the, the country. It's not that, you know, provinces are experiencing really dramatically different things. So I think there is a chance to, to take that approach. And, and what we would really like to see is the federal government providing some leadership, particularly around some of the key challenges that really do have a national solution. And so those are things like Canadian, pardon me, creating a pan-Canadian workforce plan as an example. You know, right now, we don't collect any data about the healthcare professionals that we have, where they are, where they work planning down for projections down the road about how many people we're going to need and then linking those back to our educational institutions to make sure we have the right number of people in training. So there's a real opportunity there for federal leadership that could help prevent us from getting into a health workforce crisis like this down the road. There's other strategies like a pan-Canadian license for physicians and nurses that would allow more health workforce mobility. And that's really important right now in some of our rural areas where there's really immense stress and often small numbers of providers. And it can be very challenging for physicians in those communities to get anyone to come to help them to have a break or a holiday. And that then, of course, in turn makes retention to those communities very difficult when new physicians think, well, do I want to move somewhere if I'm never going to be able to take a day off work? Um, So improving that workforce mobility so that people in bigger centers can go and help out easily makes a big difference. Um, And also as we're looking at how virtual care can be leveraged to improve access to care, again, a a national license makes a lot more sense than we'd be able to provide care across borders and improve access uh, for Canadians. So that's another place for federal leadership. And I think the third place is, is, you know, there's many things, but sort of talking about some of the top priorities uh, is around primary care. You know, it's very clear uh, that we have a a system for primary care family medicine in Canada that was really designed in the 60s for for what the patients were like in those days and what the population's needs were. And they're really not reflective of the health challenges that are presenting it currently in our system. And it's become very challenging for family doctors to do the work that they want to do. And, and it's they've made it very clear that a lot of the structures that they're working in are so antiquated, they're not able to retain or attract newer family doctors. And, you know, a great example is some data that came just out of BC a couple of weeks ago that showed of their 6,000 family doctors, only half of them are actually working in longitudinal family medicine. So this is a, a real signal that we need to reimagine that space. And I think this is another example where the federal government can provide some leadership. We do have some solutions things like integrated team-based care, different payment models for physicians. And there's, this has been tried in some provinces um, like Alberta and Ontario with success. So again, it's a chance for other provinces to, to learn from that. And I think for the federal government to direct resources uh, to, to motivate provinces to, to implement some of these changes. So I'm optimistic if we can get people to the table and, and sort of park all of our egos and, and get down to business more about the fact that Canadians want solutions, not politics when it comes to health, that maybe we can start implementing some of these changes and see some improvements. Yeah, hallelujah. That's been <laughs> it's been tried before. It's uh, you know I remember the big healthcare conferences and so on of the past. Uh, you talked a bit about will uh, and whether or not it's there or not. Do you sense that it's there? Where, where do you see blockages or resistance to some of what you've been talking about? And and is it just acknowledgement that the problem is as bad as it is that it's politically sensitive? Where are you seeing the uh, the lack of will? 
I think the will is coming. I think the tides are turning. You know, I think naturally politicians are always inclined to want to tell everybody everything's okay, especially something controversial like healthcare, uh, where it's obviously an important issue to Canadians and they know that. And, uh, you know, sometimes admitting that there's a problem can be a bit of a death sentence, I think, as a politician. But I think it's getting harder and harder to deny this reality. And I think as more and more Canadians are truly not being able to access care, our politicians kind of have no choice but to take this on. So I think we're starting to move the needle on that. I think, you know, the risk, I think, for this is because it is a large problem and it's complicated, um, there is the worry about do the politicians feel like it's something they can change in their mandate? And I think sometimes that can be a barrier as well because they think, hold on a minute here, this is complicated. If I put the energy into this, I'm not going to necessarily see the improvements while I'm still the one in power. Um, And that, I think, can sometimes be a barrier to wanting to take on some of these more complicated issues. But the reality, I think, now is we've just come to a point where we can no longer just carry on with what we've been doing because the consequences are in front of us. And I think that's why it's so important that we're talking about this. This is why we've been trying to bring this forward to Canadians because, you know, they need to know so that they can be advocating to their politicians for what they want to see. And they need to make it clear, all of us do, to our elected officials that this needs to be a priority because it's, you know, all of us are going to need the healthcare system at some point. I know. I mean, I was just thinking back to some recent election campaigns where it felt like healthcare wasn't really front and center, considering what a problem it's become or, or continues to be. I know it is surprising. You do wonder. You know, it's interesting because when you do polling, it, it's a top priority uh, for Canadians. But we don't always see that necessarily translate when it comes time to vote. And I think, you know, also concerning when you look at the recent election in Ontario, was just how low the voter turnout was, and it really, you know, makes me worried about are we as citizens engaging with our democracy and, and really making sure that we come to our elected officials with what matters to us and then also hold them accountable because that's, you know, the world that we're in. And if we don't do our part as citizens, I think that puts us all at risk. Do you think we can we can protect this public system the way it is without ever having to resort to any sort of privatized health care in this country? I mean, I know there's a little bit here and there, but that always seems to be where the debate goes eventually. Well, I certainly hope that we can. You know, I, I certainly do not believe that a two-tiered healthcare system is the solution here. I mean, the reality is we barely have enough resource to to operate one system. So if we start deploying the people we have into two parallel systems, I think there's a real worry that the quality of care would decline um, in, in the public system. And, and that's the worry. I also think that you know, Canadians have always been clear that universal access to health care is important to them. And I, I think it is part of our national identity. And I hope it remains so because it's a huge equity issue and it matters. But I think what we have to be careful of is that we don't let the system deteriorate to the point that it just seems that the only alternative is to do something totally different. We need to be investing in our healthcare system. We need to be making modernizing our healthcare system. We need to be acting on these things that we know are needed to get it back where it needs to be rather than assuming that something different would be better. Um, So again, this is, I think, why that political will is so important. And I think we just can't be complacent. Uh, You know, we, we have to realize that everything over time needs to change. And the healthcare system is unfortunately just something that has been left in, in the dark in a lot of ways. It has not kept up 
with with some of the newer technologies and strategies and approaches to things, and we need to get on with that. Dr. Catherine Smart, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate you having me. 